If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Or you can visit mentalhealth.gov online to find a community mental health service in your area. We love you guys. We're here for you guys. We support you. If you are struggling with mental health, you are not alone. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And And this this is is Hashtag Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Hey guys, this is Rachel from Hashtag History. I have here my co-host, Leah. Hi guys. And then we have the guys from the Discographer podcast. We have Tyler. Hi, how you doing? And we have Brian. Howdy. So we are collaborating on a super cool, super fun podcast episode that meshes all the things we all love. Music, history, and murder, Yeah, I guess. Yeah, sure. Does that sound about right? (laughs) Yeah, close enough. So um, if you guys are listening to this episode because you listen to Hashtag History, you know that on Hashtag History, the things we love to talk about are dark history, mysteries, corruption, conspiracies. Um, But if you're new to the Discographer podcast, let me throw it over to Tyler and or Brian. Tell us a little bit about your podcast and what people can expect if they want to check you guys out. Yeah. So typically we do, uh, we'll do a series on an artist and we'll do one episode on each album, work our way through the entire discography. Uh, we'll start it out with a little history section to kind of get you up to date on what what was happening with the f- during the behind the scenes on the album. Uh, Brian will then take over and give you a, a technical breakdown of each track and kind of why each song is interesting or unique. And then together, Brian and I will go through the tracks again, kind of just giving our opinion and... Um, you know, like we're on our current season with uh, the Smashing Pumpkins, we're kind of coming into it uh, with fresh ears. And so we just get to kind of, you get to hear how it, uh, a fresh take on, on stuff that maybe you know, or maybe you're, you don't, maybe you're like us and you don't know the Smashing Pumpkins and you're kind of on the ride with us. You don't know the Smashing Pumpkins? <laughs> well, we don't, like the singles, we, we all yeah. know. We, uh, yeah, we, we all know the singles. <laughs> Leah, t- yeah, t- Leah, tell us uh, your opinions on Machina 2. Okay. Uh, I, yeah. I see your point. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bit of a needless flex. Sorry. <laughs> a needless flex. I would say something I really like about the Discographer podcast is like, I feel when I scroll through the episodes and stuff like, yeah, I know this band, but exactly what you said, like we all know the singles. And then I know that these bands are iconic. Why are they iconic? What mm-hmm. I love is that, that Brian like breaks down like chord by chord. It's interesting that he did this as opposed to this because I'm like, oh, okay, I never once thought of that. And now I see why it was like such a cool, iconic and legendary compilation mm-hmm. of chords. Yeah. And then, of course, I love Tyler. You always do like a little history segment, which from the history nerd over here, obviously, yeah. is my favorite piece. So, sure, <laughs> yeah. Since it was actually Tyler's idea, Tyler, go yeah. ahead and take it away with an intro of what we're going to be talking about this week. Yeah, so we're going to talk about Kurt Cobain and uh, specifically Kurt Cobain's death. Um, uh, you know, 
uh, kind of ultimately ending with, you know, do, we'll talk about some uh, theories on, you know, do you believe the uh, the, the police report, the, the official report on uh, what happened or maybe an alternative theory? Um, but we'll just kind of talk about it and, and have some fun. Um, but uh, with this little crossover episode, uh, we're going to do one of your segments, um, and that's the, the cocktail segment you guys always do. Yes. And it's not going to be much of a segment, as I told these guys beforehand. But um, <laughs> so today it's cocktail. Everybody has it, right? It's yes. poured. It's ready to go. Yep. Eagerly yes. waiting to drink it. All right. Why are they all different colors, guys? It depends on Mine's... the grapefruit juice, I'm sure. I, I got some incredibly dark rum. I got some black strap rum. <laughs> love it. I, I got the, the Kraken, Kraken rum. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is. Oh, love yeah, it. The spice stuff, yeah. 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 Um, so this week's cocktail is called the Nirvana cocktail. So, Ooh. yeah, obviously <laughs> you see the correlation <laughs> now, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, this cocktail contains one and a half ounces of dark rum, a half ounce of grenadine, a teaspoon of simple syrup, and then top it off with grapefruit juice. Um, so it's a pretty simple cocktail, at least for the ones that we've made recently. <laughs> And of on the cheaper side of ones that we've made recently mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> normally I like to dig into the history of the cocktail, but unfortunately this one, there isn't one. So we're just going <laughs> to drink it. And then I think we should all give it our rating and go from there. Right, Can right. I give a rating before we start? Uh, yeah. I don't like grapefruit juice. Okay. Neither do I. Okay. Oh, well, I mean, I... I, I do, so I might be a little. <laughs> I, it might be a little more partial to this. Yeah, same. Right. Remote cheers, everybody. Oh. Cheers. Okay. Without, uh, oh. you know, I don't. I just said I don't like grapefruit juice, but this isn't bad. Yeah. The, the the grenadine and the simple syrup really actually uh, fight the the bitterness real real well. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree. This yeah. is it's actually almost a little sweet for my taste, but I don't mind it. <laughs> Um, I did I, on mine. I did do. I did double on everything, mm, mm. Um, and then I just filled the rest with uh, grapefruit. So maybe mine is a little bit more. Mine's a little bit less grapefruity. Yeah, mm -hmm. probably. But, but mm. it was good. It's good. I, I, yeah. I did some healthy pours. I, I, I was certainly not measuring them. Uh, I, I was just doing ratios. But yeah, that's a let's. I mean, let's not lie. Leah and I do that all the time. Like, yeah, especially when a half ounces. Especially when vodka is concerned, we're just like half mm. the bottle. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It goes bad if you open it and don't drink it. <laughs> yeah, that's the rule, right? <laughs> all right, Rachel. What's your rating? Oh. My rating, um, I preemptively judged it, I will admit, because I was planning to go into this with a solid 2 out of 10 rating. Wow. I am going to, yeah, I'm a jerk. I was going to give it like a 2. Um, I might go with like a 6, which is pretty high for me for grapefruit juice. Mm. Mm. Anyone else? Um, I'll, I'll say a 6 as well. I think that's that's about solid. Um, I'll, I'll definitely finish it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm certainly not putting this to waste. I'm going to go for probably a seven. It is, it is a little sweeter than I like, but it's got some, some nice funky bitter stuff happening from the rum and the grapefruit. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm into it. Yeah. I'm into it too. I'm going to give it a seven. Um, not my favorite, but pretty good. Mm -hmm. And to piggyback off of what you said, Tyler, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether we like to drink or not, we always 
finish the drink. Okay, yes. I guess, Even if um, it's I guess disgusting. Maybe, <laughs> okay, so um, we, we all now have more of these ingredients laying around. Or will anybody be? Will anybody make this again? Or will you go and try and find something else to mix these with? I'll probably mix mm. it with... Well, I don't know. The grapefruit and rum is good. So maybe, maybe I'll do that. I, I, I might just try this again with a little less grenadine, mm. um, and, and that, that that might suit me just fine. Yeah, right. I don't I don't know how to answer the question. Uh, <laughs> I have a very large bottle of grapefruit that maybe the fiance is going to be drinking instead. So. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if my kids like grapefruit juice. There you go. Try it out. Throw throw a little bit of rum in there. They'll love it. <laughs> oh Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Right before bedtime. Oh, <laughs> uh, that'll make bedtime simple. So let's go ahead and start off. Um, Tyler, I know you prepared some history for us. Go ahead and take it away. Yeah. So normally uh, I, I, we cut to one of these like pre-recorded things that I do. Um, and then we uh, Brian will uh, do his pre-recorded segment where he breaks down the music. Uh, we're not really doing that, but he did. we did have a little uh, segment in there. In preparation for this, I was listening to a documentary um and they were just talking about how like funky Cobain's like chord mm-hmm. progressions were like his music teachers were like that makes zero sense that you chose to follow up that chord with this chord but it's beautiful and yeah. I'm like it sounds so weird but y- he made it his own and made it legendary yeah that that was that was always his greatest strength uh was yeah. making something weird sound beautiful in the grossest yeah. way possible <laughs> All right, and if you want to hear exactly what they're talking about, uh, listen to more of this episode. Kurt Cobain was born on February 20th, 1967, in Aberdeen, Washington. He was the son of a waitress and an automotive mechanic, with a younger sister born three years after. Kurt began playing music and singing from a young age. Learning the piano, he wrote a song at the age of four about a trip to a local park. When he was nine years old, Kurt's parents divorced, and his parents noticed a shift in his personality. He became quiet and withdrawn, as opposed to his formerly happy and outgoing personality. In 1993, Kurt said, I remember being ashamed for some reason. I was ashamed of my parents. I couldn't face some of my friends at school anymore because I desperately wanted to have the classic, you know, typical family. Mother, father, I wanted that security, so I resented my parents for quite a few years because of that. His parents found new relationships with his father getting remarried and having another son, which Kurt resented, and his mother dating a man who abused her. Kurt began acting out, disrespecting authority, and bullying a classmate in school. He was required to participate in sports, but Kurt would intentionally allow himself to be pinned in wrestling and strike himself out in baseball. After a period of homelessness as a young adult, Kurt would play in a joke band called Fecal Matter and would hang out with local grunge band The Melvins. At the Melvin's rehearsal space, Kurt met Chris Novoselic and eventually teamed to form Nirvana after trying out the names Skid Row and Ted Ed Fred. The name Nirvana was taken from the Buddhist concept which Cobain described as, quote, freedom from pain, suffering, and the external world, unquote. Normally on our show, we break down the artist's music one track at a time and from a music theory perspective, but that's not what this episode is about. We do want to cover Nirvana's music properly at some point down the road, but Brian is going to give us an idea of why Kurt Cobain was so unique musically. Take it away, Brian. Nirvana certainly weren't the originators of grunge rock and alt-rock, but without Nirvana, these genres likely wouldn't have dominated the 90s and found a home in so many hearts. 
Kurt received numerous accolades as a guitarist and as a singer, and for good reason. But his real brilliance was in his ability as a songwriter. The formula of Nirvana's music can be grossly oversimplified to what if we wrote songs like the Beatles, but then made them sound shitty? As the main creative force behind the band, Kurt pervaded music that leaned incredibly heavily on contrast. He would write perfect, simple pop songs and then do everything in his power to mess up the sound without messing up the structure. To understand what I mean, let's take a real quick look at a few of their songs, starting with one off their first record, Bleach. If you take a look at the chorus of the song about a girl, it's basically a Beatles chorus. It has some fun and interesting chord movement, but nothing too outlandish. A perfect little nugget of pop. But the way it's executed made it something new. With a muddy guitar and Kurt's raspy, strained vocals, it has a darker, messier character than any of the 1960s pop that really is at its backbone. The song is a sheep in wolf's clothing. Next, off of their landmark record, Nevermind, let's take a look at the big single, Smells Like Teen Spirit. From the very start, things are unbalanced when he plays the first chord, which should ostensibly be an F minor. Instead, he plays the chord sloppily, making it an F suspended. A suspended chord doesn't have a major or minor sound to it, so right from the beginning, he has your attention, because for a split second, you as a listener aren't really sure how to feel. The song then alternates between relatively calm verses and huge choruses with violent guitars. Again, this structure is pure pop, but the sound is anything but. Simply put, Kurt would write songs with such simple pop precision that they would reliably get directly into your brain but he would make them sound so aggressive and huge that they would stay in your brain. After the rock of the 1960s eventually went through several slow mutations before we wound up with hair metal in the 80s, Nirvana had the right songs to bring a new sound to the mainstream. And it was like a bolt of lightning out of a clear sky. We won't go any deeper into the topic of Nirvana's music so that we can hopefully cover the band in a later series. But as you're probably aware, Nirvana was a huge band in the 90s. Since their debut, Nirvana has sold over 25 million albums in the U.S. alone. The success of their second album, Nevermind, provided numerous Seattle bands such as Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden access to wider audiences. As a result, alternative rock became a dominant genre on radio and music television in the U.S. during the early to middle 90s. Nirvana was considered the flagship band of Generation X, and Cobain found himself reluctantly anointed by the media as the Generation's spokesman. In early 1990 or 91, Cobain met actress and singer Courtney Love. Both Kurt and Courtney's bands had yet to hit mainstream, but they did have an underground following. Initially, Cobain resisted Love's advances, but eventually bonded over their mutual interest in drug use. Cobain regularly used cannabis during adulthood and was known to take notable amounts of LSD. Chris Novoselic said Cobain was, quote, really into getting fucked up. Drugs, acid, any kind of drug, unquote. Cobain used heroin sporadically for years. He claimed he was, quote, determined to get a habit, unquote, as a way to self-medicate for a stomach condition. 
quote, started with three days in a row of doing heroin and I don't have a stomach pain. That was such a relief, unquote. However, his longtime friend Buzz Osborne disputes this, saying that his stomach pain was more likely caused by his heroin use, saying, quote, he made it up for sympathy and so he could use it as an excuse to stay loaded. Of course he was vomiting. That's what people on heroin do. They vomit. It's called vomiting with a smile on your face, unquote. By late 1991, Cobain and Love were a romantic couple and were married on February 24, 1992. Love wore a satin and lace dress once owned by actress Frances Farmer, and Cobain wore pajamas because he was, quote, too lazy to put on a tux, unquote. Eight people were in attendance at the ceremony, including Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl. In August of 1992, Love gave birth to the couple's daughter, Frances Bean Cobain. Prior to her Nirvana performance in New York City in July 93, Cobain suffered a heroin overdose. Rather than calling for an ambulance, Love injected Cobain with naloxone to bring him out of his unconscious state. Cobain proceeded to perform with giving the public every indication that everything was business as usual. In support of Nirvana's In Utero album, the band embarked on a European tour. On the morning of March 4, 1994, Courtney Love found Kurt Cobain unconscious in their hotel room in Rome, and he was rushed to the hospital. Cobain had reacted to a combination of prescribed rohypnol and alcohol. The rest of the tour had to be canceled, and in the ensuing weeks, Cobain's heroin addiction resurfaced. On March 18, 1994, Love phoned the Seattle Police Department, informing them that Cobain was suicidal and had locked himself in a room with a gun. When police arrived, Cobain insisted that he was not suicidal and had locked himself in the room to hide from Love. Cobain was convinced by Love to admit himself into drug rehabilitation, but after less than a week, Cobain left the facility and returned to Seattle. April 8, 1994, Kurt Cobain's body was discovered with the cause of death ruled as self-inflicted gunshot to the head. The Seattle Post-Intelligent reported that Cobain was, quote, high on heroin when he pulled the trigger, unquote. The paper reported that the toxicological test determined that the level of morphine in Cobain's blood system was 1.52 milligrams per liter, and there was evidence of Valium in his blood. Cobain was 27 years old. Dave Grohl said that the news of Cobain's death was, quote, possibly the worst thing that has happened to me in my life. I remember the day after that I woke up and was heartbroken that he was gone. I just felt like, okay, so I get to wake up today and have another day. And later he said, quote, Sometimes you just can't save someone from themselves. In some ways, you kind of prepare yourself emotionally for that to be a reality. Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins referred to Cobain as, quote, the Michael Jordan of our generation, unquote. He also stated that Cobain opened the door for everyone in the 1990s alternative rock scene. Anthony Kiedis, lead singer of Red Hot Chili Peppers, wrote in his autobiography, quote, The news of Cobain's death sucked the air out of the entire house. Kurt's death was unexpected. It was an emotional blow, and we all felt it. I don't know why everyone on earth felt so close to that guy. He was beloved, endearing, and inoffensive in some weird way. For all of his screaming and all of his darkness, he was just lovable. listening to this episode now because you are already a listener of the hashtag history podcast first off thank you or to anyone that's now interested in listening to the show because they know we do super cool cocktails each week welcome 
But to any of you that are loyal listeners of the Hashtag History Podcast, you know that I, Rachel, am a major history nerd. So I loved the history that Tyler just told about Cobain because it's the foundation for what I am now about to talk about. Because if there's anything that I love just as much as history, it is true crime, murder, blood, and mayhem. So, you know, just (laughs) doing my best over here to sound like a great person. So (laughs) now I have the pleasure, again, sounding super morbid here, of diving deeper into Cobain's suicide. Or was it suicide? Dun, dun, dun. We'll get to that, guys. As Tyler mentioned, Cobain's upbringing led to a lifelong battle with depression that was never properly addressed nor diagnosed. Depression and mental illness ran deep in Cobain's family. In fact, Cobain actually had two uncles that also committed suicide by gun. Additionally, like Tyler mentioned, Cobain had major stomach issues. Now, whether that was, like Buzz Osborne said, a result of his heavy heroin usage or if he used heroin to subside the pain of his stomach, regardless, his stomach was messed up. I think nowadays we could relatively easily diagnose it as IBS or some kind of stomach bacteria or some other form of digestive issue. I mean, nowadays, everyone and their mother takes probiotics. I personally have probiotics on the kitchen counter. But 30-some years ago, that wasn't the case. Now, why do I even bring up his stomach issues? Because they completely altered his life. A good friend of his said that when it came time to eat, Cobain would just start crying at the thought. Oh, my God. I'm going to cry at the thought of that. That's rough. That's horrible. It's, It's super, super upsetting to hear. His own body fought him when he attempted to nourish it. And I just, I can't even imagine the physical and psychological pain associated with that. Food is my favorite thing on this planet. Can, Same. And consuming well, it. <laughs> and, and consuming it. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine it like a social setting? Like we all go out to dinner and one person's just sitting there crying when the food starts coming out. Right. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, it's like not funny at all. But sort of. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a, you're sitting there, the waiter shows up, and uh, three people order, and they get to the last one, and it's just tears. It's really dark. It's really sad. Something Cobain knew from an early age was that he wanted to be a rock star. He wanted to play music, and he wanted to be successful. What he didn't want, and what he didn't expect, were tabloids and a scrutiny of the media, especially when it came to his relationship with Courtney Love. It was a lot to deal with. I mean, I talk to Leah about this all the time, the psychological trip up that we have as humans where you can receive a million and one compliments, but it's that one critique, that one hurtful remark, that's the one that sticks with you the most. And I think, I know that that was much of Cobain's experiences. He was praised as a rock god but was also knocked down day in and day out that people that said that Utero wasn't as good as Nevermind. He was knocked down by the people that despise Courtney Love and so on. On March 3rd, 1994, so approximately a month before his death, Cobain was hospitalized for a painkiller overdose. Then, as Tyler mentioned, he had the March 18th incident in which he had locked himself in a room with a gun. When Love called the authorities, they ended up seizing all four of Cobain's guns. His friends, including Love, shortly thereafter staged an intervention in which they gave him all kinds of ultimatums if he didn't get his act together. 
Nirvana would break up if he couldn't get clean and Love would leave him, taking their daughter along with her. Cobain reluctantly agreed to enter himself into rehab in L.A., but before leaving for rehab, he approached a friend of his, Dylan Carlson, who had also been part of that intervention, and he asked him to help him get a gun. Because of the police confiscation of Cobain's four guns, he feared he would have a difficult time obtaining another one on his own, and so he told Carlson that he absolutely needed him to get him one for the sake of his own protection. Carlson says, yeah, sure, buddy, that doesn't sound like a bad idea at all, and he helps him by purchasing the gun under his own name. But Carlson tells Cobain, you know what, I'm going to hold on to this gun since you're about to check yourself into rehab anyway. Cobain refused this arrangement and demanded that once Carlson got the gun, he would hold onto it himself. We don't have a confirmed account of what Cobain did with the gun once he received it, but it's assumed that he dropped it off at his house before traveling to the rehab center. Too bad he only stayed at the rehab center for two days. He told staff on either March 30th or March 31st, dependent upon which source you read, that he was stepping outside for a quick cigarette, but instead scaled a six-foot wall and took off. That's Because that's normal. <laughs> Jeez. Over the course of the next few days, eyewitnesses reported seeing him walking around Seattle, and he even made contact with some of his friends during this time. But come April 8th, nobody had heard from Cobain in days. On the morning of April 8th, 1994, an electrician arrived at Kurt Cobain's Seattle residence to install security lighting. It was then that he found Cobain dead in the greenhouse that he had just above the garage. There was a Remington Model 11 20-gauge shotgun on his chest and a suicide note nearby that had been written with a red pen that was then used to puncture the note and stick it into a flower pot. It appeared as though he had died days earlier, potentially on April 5th. When his body was later examined, they found high concentrations of heroin and traces of Valium in his bloodstream. Cobain's wallet was found near his body, open, and with his ID sticking out slightly. It's thought that perhaps Cobain intentionally positioned his wallet in such a manner to make his body easy to identify, which, if reports are true, it's a good thing he did that because he was barely recognizable in death. In fact, a magazine reported that authorities were only able to identify Cobain by his fingerprints. <sighs> so that's horrible. Yeah. Now, of course, I would never show a gruesome picture from the scene to you guys, which I can't actually anyway, because although some photos were released by authorities at the time of the incident, and yet another 36 pictures from the scene were released in 2014, None of these pictures include Cobain's full body. Anyway, I do want to show you guys a picture that just really struck a chord with me. So go ahead and check it out. He still had his um, hospital rehab oh. uh, bracelet on. Is that what yep. you wanted to point yeah. out? Yes. There were actually, there were two things in this picture I wanted to point out. Leah, you are correct. That is the first one. Um, so it's a picture, it's, it's a picture of Cobain's arm after his death. Um, it's one of the police pictures that was taken. Uh, so yeah, like Leah said, the wristband is still there on his arm from the Exodus Recovery Center, the rehab facility that he had escaped from just days before his death. There's one other thing in this picture I'm hoping you guys spot. Is it the watch with someone's face on it? 
Um, the, the needle mark in his arm? Yes. Yeah. Ding, yeah, ding, ding. Tyler Tyler right Christmas there time. up there. I, I yes. cheated. I, I saw this picture and somebody pointing it out. So Really? <laughs> yeah. So you can see just like a pin size mark there on his arm. That there is where he injected $50 worth of heroin into his bloodstream before dying. I don't know what $50 worth of heroin is. Is that a lot? Yeah, that was me, pret- that was me pretending like I have any kind of idea what $50 worth of heroin is. Okay. I, you know, I am hesitant to type uh, any search relating <laughs> that search into that. Google. <laughs> incognito tab. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I should do all of our research in incognito. One day the police are going to be like, what the f***? Dude. Yeah, Rachel, I don't mean to alarm you, but you're almost certainly on an FBI watch list. At this oh, point. No, like, and to when we get there later in the like controversies and stuff to get what I needed, like for not the contra, I'm sorry, the conspiracy theories, like yeah, yeah. these sites I was hitting were like not getting what I was asking for, so I ended up typing Courtney killed Kurt, and then I was like, oh shit, here's everything I needed, <laughs> but my search that I put in was Courtney killed Kurt, like oh man. Now I'm on a list. (laughs) Okay, guys, since we are already looking at pictures, let's now check out um, a picture of the suicide note because we are about to spend a lot of time dissecting it. Cool. So that is pictures two and three. So there it is, just uh, plucked into the flower bed. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, it's Tabata. It's it's yes. his. Uh, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, to his childhood uh, imaginary friend. Yeah. Which can. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna get yeah. into that, um, and hopefully, we can have a deeper conversation because I have many questions about that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the pictures we're looking at here, we have a close up of the suicide note, and then we have kind of a further away picture that shows the red pen that he wrote. Um, the note in, he ended up using that same pen, sticking it through the letter and puncturing it into a flower bed. Cause remember he was found in a greenhouse, mm-hmm. this letter. Um, one thing you can really know, it seems almost like when you're looking at it, maybe it started a little more, uh, coherently just kind of based on the writing. And then there at the end, it gets re- like the font gets really big, really yeah. slanted, really jumbled. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's almost, <laughs> I, I hate to be this dark, but it's like the moment where the heroin hits yeah, is. Yeah. That's, that's my assumption, too. Like, this is the end. Let me finish and get out exactly what I want to say. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. drink about that. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, guys. I already finished mine, so. Oh, <laughs> I'm close. Way to go. <laughs> Okay, so like Brian mentioned, the suicide note was addressed to Boda. That was Cobain's childhood imaginary friend, which I just wanted to open up a discussion about that. There is nothing wrong with having imaginary friends. I don't remember having one as a kid, but that doesn't mean anything. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, like, I just wanted to open up the conversation. Am I alone in either not having an imaginary friend or if you had one, not remembering the name of it? It just really strikes me that as a 27-year-old man... He remembered the name of his childhood imaginary friend? Or is that just me? Well, I, I don't think it's weird that he remembers the name of it. I don't remember having an imaginary friend or anything either. I don't think it's weird he remembers the name. What I think is interesting is that that's the person that he addresses his suicide note to. Yeah. Like, that it, that's in, in his subconscious enough or in his 
conscious enough that he would address his suicide note to his imaginary friend. Right. Well, I, I think there's there's something interesting there because like I I never remember having an imaginary friend. I, I was a very social kid, even as awkward as I was when I was little. But <laughs> very awkward. <laughs> you didn't even Tyler. It was better by the time you met me. <laughs> um. No, but uh, I, I do think that a lot of times kids uh, will develop an imaginary friend as a coping mechanism. Uh, and so I think that makes a lot of sense, given that we have information about him having a, you know, a dark and troubled childhood. And it's sort of an escape. Yeah. Um, now, that being said, I think, you know, there there are people of all walks of life that have had imaginary friends. I don't think it's just just people who have had terrible childhoods, but I think it's probably more prevalent. And I'm basing that off of nothing, um, but <laughs> but that th- that would be my guess. Um, I think yeah, that's a really really good perspective because that actually just reminded me. I have a girlfriend that um, works in group homes, and she does a lot of therapy. And she told me once that um, if something traumatic happened to you in your life, so say it eight years old, something pretty traumatic mm-hmm. happened to you, and that could be the divorce of your parents. For the rest of your life, unless you heal from that event, for the rest of your life when you're 18, 25, 30, so on, when something happens that bothers you or some other kind of traumatic event, you revert back to the person you were when that first traumatic event happened. Mm-hmm. It's just like your your psyche reverts you back there and you behave again like an eight-year-old kid that doesn't know how to communicate and shuts mm-hmm. down. And I just when she said that to me, that like really hit me because I can see that in my own life, not having had... Uh, any major major trauma but just events in my life um, not fully healing from things and seeing myself revert back into the same place again and again and so I think that's a really good perspective and maybe that's what it was he had a traumatic experience as kid as a kid and here he is in what is the most traumatic event of his life and he's reverting right back into that trauma Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that maybe that, that's. I think that's one theory on uh, Michael Jackson and his whole personality is that he just never really progressed beyond a certain point, and yeah. so he mm-hmm. was, you know, I'll have a zoo and a theme park in my on my property, and yeah, I've got millions in, of dollars, so nobody can tell me no. Yeah. Um. Yeah, absolutely. This is a side note. If you guys ever do Michael Jackson, I will be there one million percent <laughs> because while everyone Jeez. else. Yeah, go ahead, Leah. <laughs> no, it's just like on days where like Rachel has had bad days and she'll come over for a drink or something. I'll be like, what can I do for you? And she'll just be like, play Michael Jackson. <laughs> play some MJ, please. No, I'm being dead serious. And Leah, I forgot to send you this video. I'm going to send it to you tomorrow. Um, while everyone else is learning TikTok videos, I have been spending a significant, embarrassing oh, amount of time. No, learning Smooth Criminal. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I've been watching the Smooth Criminal uh, music video about 17 times a day. So just if anyone was wondering, and if you guys do a Michael Jackson episode or episodes, I will be there. I'll be there. That's another MJ song. Okay. <laughs> so if, if you manage to figure out how to do that uh, that lean that MJ does in the Smooth oh. Criminal video without hooks in your shoes, let me know. Yeah, I'm that's asking what I was going <laughs> I was just, he does that because he has hooks in his shoes. No, yeah. I'm not learning up to that part. I'm learning the where he's like fixing mm-hmm. the cuffs. Yeah, of sure. His shirt. Yeah, yeah. That's as far as I've gotten. We're, nice. We are four eight counts in. That's how far I've learned choreography wise. <laughs> Sorry, there's plenty more quarantine to go. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> so I'm going to have the whole dance down minus the lean part by the end of this quarantine. That's how you make your entrance into work the, the first time. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'll make my entrance coming into a smooth criminal and 25 pounds fatter because all I do is eat and drink. So. <laughs> yep. This feels cheers. like some sort of meme. Yeah, like, like me moonwalking back into work. Uh, moonwalking back into work after quarantine to <laughs> signify that I don't want to be there by showing oh, them my man. back. <laughs> if I can manage the moonwalk by the end of this quarantine, I would call that a success. I'll show you, Rachel. I got okay. you. I can do a very uh, sad looking moonwalk. <laughs> okay. Um, so, suicide note. So, back to that suicide note. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> super Best boring. transition ever. Yeah, that's what we do here. <laughs> um, Leah, could you do me a favor and read a couple of excerpts from the suicide note for us? And sure. by excerpts, I mean pretty much read 90% of the original suicide note. Yeah, right after you gave me the giggles, now I'm going to read a suicide <laughs> note. Okay. <laughs> and just an FYI, if you thought Rachel was doing really well, I will be doing the opposite because my reading is not as good as hers. <laughs> I, I, I did think she was doing very well. <laughs> So, and yeah. Leah, you've you finished your drink, so there's a difference. Yeah, that's Fair. true too. And I also had a hard cider with dinner. So. <laughs> okay. This is gonna be sad. All the warnings from the punk rock 101 courses over the years, since my first introduction to the, shall we say, ethics involved with independence and the embracement of your community, has proven to be very true. I haven't felt the excitement of listening to as well as creating music along with reading and writing for too many years now. I feel guilty beyond words about these things. For example, when we're backstage and the lights go out and the manic roar of the crowds begins, it doesn't affect me the way in which it did for Freddie Mercury, who seemed to love, relish in the love and adoration from the crowd, which is something I totally admire and envy. The fact is, I can't fool you any of you. It simply isn't fair to you or me. The worst crime I can think of would be to rip people off by faking it and pretending as if I'm having 100% fun. Sometimes I feel as if I should have punch in time clock before I walk out on the stage. I've tried everything within my power to appreciate it, and I do, God believe me, I do, but it's not enough. I appreciate the fact that I and we have affected and entertained a lot of people. It must be one of those narcissists who only appreciate things when they're gone. I'm too sensitive. I need to be slightly numb in order to regain the enthusiasm I once had as a child. I have a goddess of a wife who sweats ambition and empathy and a daughter who reminds me too much of what I used to be full of love and joy, kissing every person she meets because everyone is good and will do her no harm. And that terrifies me to the point where I can barely function. I can't stand the thought of Francis becoming the miserable, self-destructive death rocker that I've become. I have it good, very good, and I'm grateful, but since the age of seven, I've become hateful towards all humans in general, only because it seems so easy for people to get along that have empathy only because I love and feel sorry for people too much, I guess. Thank you all from the pit of my burning, nauseous stomach for your letters and concerns during the past years. I'm too much of an erratic, moody baby. I don't have the passion anymore, and so remember, it's better to burn out than to fade away. 
Yeah, let's all just take a drink if you have anything left. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll lick the bottoms of the glass. <sighs> yeah. So the the thing that's really interesting to me is like literally just last night I was talking to two of the guys that I play in a band with and um, we were talking about that exact moment when uh, you know you're about to go on. Now obviously we don't have hordes of screaming fans. We're <laughs> small small band across two states, but um, the, the we were talking about how that's a drug in and of itself, mm-hmm. right? Like that feeling right before you're about to go on stage is just this weird rush of adrenaline and dopamine, and it's a it's a drug in and of itself. And I think it speaks a lot to his drug use that he would be numb to that. Yes. Because it is an incredible feeling. I mean, even if you're about to walk out to a room of 12 strangers, it's it's still like, oh, it's about to happen. Right. And and that's that's so sad that he that he's missing out on it at that point, you yeah. know? That he can't feel it anymore. My biggest yeah. takeaway is that it's not feel sorry for me, feel sorry for me. It's like, I'm sorry I'm letting all of my fans down and all of my friends down. Like that that that's his reasoning behind it. it right. A lot of the times yeah. I think people think of um, suicide as like a, a very selfish act and like a I'm miserable, mm-hmm. which he, he he alludes to. He says he's not happy or whatever. But a mo- a, most of this, I would say, is very much like I'm letting you guys down. I'm letting my family down. And that that's not something I, I know. Yeah. I don't think of that side of things when you hear about someone committing suicide. Yeah. I think there's there's another line in there where uh, he tells uh, Courtney to keep going uh, for Francis because her life will be so much happier without him. Oh yes, uh, yeah. and, and like that that's a really common thread in suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's it's, I mean, freaking heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think to me the most heartbreaking thing is that he feels so bad about not. Um, that people are giving him, you know, attention and adoration and he knows how grateful he should be for it. And he is grateful. Mm -hmm. He says that, but he feels bad that he's not, uh, consuming it and absorbing it the way that he thinks he should. And it, it just, it breaks my heart because I wish he had just gotten some help and been able to get out of his own head Mm -hmm. because when you, it's exactly what Leah said. He sounds like a good person. It was, I mean, if there could be a selfless suicide Mm -hmm. note to me, this is an example of it. He just was so in his own head and so consumed by his own illnesses that it allowed him, it, it, it allowed him to take his own life. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that was really deep and dark and depressing. So Let's move on to more fun stuff, guys. <laughs> I <laughs> I teased at the beginning of the episode as to whether Cobain's death truly was a suicide or not. I think, and this is coming from me, who is, as I have recently learned since beginning the Hashtag History podcast, a bit of a conspiracy theorist myself. Just a but little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. I didn't even know this before we started a podcast, but I guess I am. Um, I still think it's pretty clear that Cobain was struggling severely with his mental health and that his death is the result of his own hands. But that hasn't stopped conspiracy theorists from coming up with their own narratives. And I am here for it. Woohoo. <laughs> so the Let's primary. Let's get weird. Let's get weird. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Weird's better than depressed. So. Yes. 
All right. The primary conspiracy theory is that Courtney Love herself had Cobain murdered. Mm-hmm. One piece of alleged evidence for this is actually the suicide note itself. So do you guys recall the whole section where Kurt raved about what a goddess his wife is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which feels a little out of place. <laughs> a little. So now, of course, we we can't pretend to know the things that one would say and do when they're high and they're minutes away from taking their own life. But the fact that Kurt praised his wife in his final words raised suspicion amongst many people. Hmm. At the time of Cobain's death, he and Love were not doing so hot. In fact, Cobain had recently requested that his attorney remove Love from his will. At the Hmm. same time, Love was also in contact with attorneys, divorce attorneys. There's also the theory that Kurt had told Love not long before his death that Nirvana would not be performing in Lollapalooza and Love was pissed at the millions of dollars that she would miss out on if Nirvana did not participate in the music festival. Also, Love had hired a PI in those few days after Cobain had escaped from the rehab center to assist in finding him. But of all the places she asked the PI to search, she didn't mention his Seattle home. Why? Additionally, you know that electrician that showed up at the house that day and ended up discovering Cobain's body? Mm -hmm. Supposedly, Love was the one that sent him there. Finally, according to a website that I used for research that had an entirely black background and all red text with the words Courtney killed Kurt in giant blood red letters that I now wish I had searched while in an incognito tab, claims that Love was close personal friends with the medical examiner in Cobain's case. So the theory goes that Love had someone murder Cobain, had the suicide note forged, and then aligned the following events to make it look like it had been a suicide. Even those that aren't necessarily convinced of Love's guilt still have a hard time believing Cobain, with the amount of heroin he had in his system, would be able to successfully shoot and kill himself with a shotgun. Again, as I have recently learned, I guess I am a bit of a conspiracy theorist, Or perhaps I just enjoy having an open mind and being open to various possibilities. But to me, this one seems like a pretty cut and dry case. Regardless of what theory you may believe, the bottom line is that Kurt Cobain was only 27 years old when he died. He is an absolute music legend, and it would have been amazing to see what other contributions he would have made to the music industry had he lived longer. The end. The end. Um, Okay. Last of my drink. A little bit. Does anybody here think that Love did it? That's my question. So going into this, I was very on the I was very much on the the side of Kurt did it himself and it's just it's very cut and dry and straightforward. Uh, doing research for this to be very informed. I'm still on that side, but I have questions. Sure. Um Okay, so yeah, before but, yeah. literally anybody else registers an opinion, what are yes. those questions? So he shoots up with a crazy amount of, of drugs. Yeah. And according to one documentary that I watched that was very biased, mm-hmm. um, their experts were saying that the time that it would take from him to shoot into his arm, which is directly into his bloodstream, mm-hmm. that he would not have time to then uh, close up his hero his, uh, his heroin um, his uh, he close up his boxes with his drugs and arrange everything kind of nicely uh, you know put the needle away in the box right. and close the lid and then be able to 
even if he had planned it out very quickly, where a quick sequence of things, he would have it would have been very fast. Like the timing on that would have to be very quick. In addition to remember what I said about him pulling out his wallet, pulling out his ID, making it assuming he did Uh, that, making it accessible to people. Would he have had time to do that? Which you could prep that before you shoot. Um, I think I think it's very clear that he knew uh, he was a big big drug user, so he uh, was aware. Uh, so yeah, there's a bit of immunity that he would potentially have. Mm-hmm. You know, it would take it would take more time, but factoring it in, it's it's a it's a crazy huge amount of drugs that would kill you. Like it was like triple the amount of uh, of of drug that you would yep. that, that would kill you. Yeah. Um, so you kind of have to factor in a little bit for uh, his constant use of it, so his body would be a little bit more used to it. But that's the one thing where I like I want more impartial experts. Um, I know the police have their experts who say that there was time to do it. Um, but then I don't know. It's that's one source and I'd, it'd be kind of nice to have more sources to, to go off of. But, um, you know, it is a very quick time. If you're, I'm assuming you, when you go shooting and then you put it in the box, you toss it in the box, close the lid, and then you've already got the shotgun in your lap and you just do it really fast. You could probably get it, get it down in a few seconds, but I'm not sure. If the time well, works on that. Even the PI that Courtney hired in this case to, um, which, I mean, we could say was a PR stunt, that she hired mm-hmm. a PI to look for Kurt. Mm-hmm. This is a, um, yeah. a audio platform here, so you guys can't see I'm doing little quotation fingers. But <laughs> that may have just been a PR move, hiring a PI to locate him, not telling that PI, hey, by the way, he also has a house in Seattle where mm-hmm. people have seen him walking the streets and he has made contact with friends in Seattle in the days leading up to his death. She didn't send the PI there. Even that PI went on to, I can't recall now if you wrote a book. I believe he wrote a yes. book. Yeah, he wrote a book. Saying Courtney Love arranged for her husband to be yeah. killed. So even the own PI that she hired does not believe her innocence. Yeah, and that and that PI, uh, uh, according to him, he was he went into the house. He 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 did search Cobain's house, but not the uh, garage, mm-hmm. um, uh, greenhouse area. But he was in Kurt's house uh, the day before the, his mm. body was found. And if his body was, if he had died a few days beforehand, he was you know within feet of Kurt Cobain's body. Yeah. Before it was discovered and not knowing it. So um, when we talk about his ability to function with that amount Mm -hmm. of heroin heroin on board and, you know, people talk about, oh, could he even have actuated a shotgun that high? This this guy was, by all accounts, a champion drug user. Yeah. Yes. Right. Like he, he clearly had the, the, the credentials, the bona fides to be yes. able to probably pull that off. Um, and I think it's interesting looking at the picture of the suicide note where most of it's more or less in the same size of writing. Mm-hmm. And then there's a space and then things get progressively larger. And it seems like yeah. he came to a complete stop at the end of one line here. So, I mean, what I would theorize is that he wrote 90% of this. And then, then shot up, and then in his last moments, uh, threw on a uh, threw on an addendum to it. Basically, mm. um, I I so I mean, in any case, you know, talking about like the angles of uh, him praising Courtney Love, right? He spent this entire letter 
sort of groveling for the fact that he existed. He, he was apologizing for everything. So that doesn't seem too far out of character for somebody in that mental state, high or not. Mm-hmm. To me, at least. Um, so I, th- if those are the two main arguments, like, oh, why, why would he call Courtney Love a goddess? And then could he use a shotgun? I, I just don't see it. Yeah. I think most Th- of this note was written before he was high, and I think he absolutely could have used the shotgun that high because he had the practice. <laughs> yeah, and those are the primary theories on that really scary website that I talked about that I now have <laughs> made it onto an FBI watch list because yes. I was on the site for more than 12 seconds. <laughs> um, on on that website, there also was this whole... I, literally, you guys, I was like, get in, get out on that website. So I got what I needed and I left. So I didn't get to all the, I'm dead serious. I was like looking all around like, oh my God, someone's going to watch. Someone's watching me. Um, on that website, there was another whole subsection about, so I don't know the reliability of this information, sure. but there. But there is this whole theory that apparently the gun did not have any fingerprints on it. How is that possible if Kurt shot himself? Because at a minimum, like, let's say, I mean, something crazy. He decides to wipe the whole gun down before he kills himself, which, okay, whatever. Yeah. Still, his fingerprints would be on the trigger. I guess unless he put something over his finger and then I, I don't know. My question is, is that in the police report or is that just it, people saying it? Um, it is in the police report that they were unable to find fingerprints on the gun. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think the one explanation that I saw for that was because he was in the greenhouse and it was over several days that his until mm. uh, after he, he wasn't discovered for a few days that uh, moisture mm. uh, messed up the, the potential for fingerprints. That's um, a good point. One thing I, I do always pay, try to pay attention to is like who is saying what thing. the The only reason why we know we have an idea of how much drug uh, drugs are in his system was because a newspaper reported it and. The newspaper doesn't, they don't say that they got it from an actual source, but everybody quotes that number, the number that I quoted in the, in the segment, um, as fact, but that's just because it was published in a newspaper. Um, sure. They never said where they actually got their source. So, um, everybody's always like, you know, talking about the amount of drugs in the system or, or, or whatever thing. And it's like, well, that, that was because you read it on a website or you heard a rumor mm-hmm. and now we're all just doing, passing it on. As if yeah. it's fact, and that's what I find with a lot of those those websites is a lot of just passing it on, passing on rumors as fact. Mm-hmm. I saw this really interesting um, article when I was doing my research that basically says that the police department that investigated this case still gets on a weekly basis at least oh, sure. one public record request to please mm-hmm. open up the files. We want to see it. Please reopen this investigation. Yeah, and I mean, still to this day, that's just amazing. It's to this been, day, what, 26 the... years? Right. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Um, so, I mean, on that, do you think that for, that this, for the good, because he's a public figure, and this is such a public, high-profile case, and it is a closed case, like it's not still active, do you think that it should be made public, or do you think it should be sealed for the benefit of his family? Hmm a good question I, I don't have an answer myself i don't uh I, there, there's a part of me that as the music fan that would want to know more yeah. information mm-hmm. but also it's like but that's kind of a jerk move to his daughter of because then as soon as anything comes out i'm sure she gets uh 
question like, oh, hey, what do you think about your dad's? Uh, did you see the gore in that picture of your dad? Right. Like, that's well, and, not cool. I mean, that's, I, I. Now, granted, I, I, I'll go ahead and say that I absolutely, I absolutely believe he killed himself. But I, what I will say is, I don't give a shit about Courtney Love. Oh but, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I do, I do worry about the ramifications of that for Francis. Sure. Yeah. Um, because like, that 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 must have been a uh, awful freaking way to grow up, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I I saw an interview with her, or maybe I read it. Uh, but she, like her is like, oh, what is your opinion of your dad? And he's like, and she was like, uh, I, she he was never there. Like he was, no. he killed himself. Like he How was gone. How would she know him? Like I, she was like you know, two when it happened, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, she, she's like, I don't know who my dad is. And that's that, you know, and, and, and the way he was phrased, I don't want to, I don't want to quote her without having it written in front of me, but it, the way that it was phrased was like, yeah, he was a jerk because he killed himself and I never got yeah. to meet him. Yeah. And, and that that's, that's the weird dichotomy of the thought around suicide because, um, the people who are sort of the collateral damage to it always see it as a very selfish thing. Oh, how could you leave me? Right. Uh, and the people who are actually in that spot of ideation are definitely much more like, oh, this is doing everyone a favor. Right. Now, that's, that's not all cases, but it's super common, though. Not that I have a huge repertoire of like reading suicide notes. <laughs> so this isn't to say I'm comparing this one with the thousands of others that I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, but just reading this one, it is so moving how selfless it seems to me mm-hmm. almost just very, just, he was so ill um, mm-hmm. in his head, but you can see he was like, this is my opinion, but just like a genuinely good person. And that's what people mm-hmm. said um, when he passed away people weren't like necessarily shocked because they knew he really struggled with a lot of demons, but everyone had good things to say about him, about just what a good hearted charismatic person he was and how devastated they were to lose him. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This has gotten heavy and dark and I'm (laughs) out of drink. (laughs) (laughs) And there's no more booze to wash it down. No, you didn't bring extra booze? Well, no, no, I, I drank my beer before we started. I'll have some of this delicious water. Everyone stay hydrated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wash that all back with some water, guys. Oh, man. All right, well, this was super fun, you guys. Yeah, for sure. How about, um? so for our listeners, the people that are on here, because you are familiar with the Hashtag History podcast, um, Tyler and Brian, tell the people where they can find you if they are interested in uh, listening to the Discographer podcast. Yeah, so if you uh, if you look up discographers, which is a made up word that I made up, so it's, it might be kind of hard to spell. But if you go to club.fail as a website, uh, we are one of those uh, the podcasts on that that site, and that's a, probably the fastest way you can get to our stuff. Um, awesome. That and, and we're on all the uh, the major uh, podcast uh, uh, feeds and stuff. So if you uh, if you can figure out how to spell it, you'll find us. You can. Um... Easily figure out how to spell it because when I was talking to Leah about it, I and might I add that I was three cocktails in, I called you guys the Disco Graphers. Perfect. Easy way to remember the spelling. I I have also done that. (laughs) While you were three cocktails in? Uh, No, sober, but... And then um, you guys know where you can find us. Uh, You can find the Hashtag History Podcast on any podcast platform we're on. I mean, we're on everything. Spotify, Apple, Google. 
pocket, pocket cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're on Instagram at Leah. Hashtag history underscore podcast. Yeah. So you guys can find us there. And um, we have weekly episodes. We drop new episodes. Episodes. We drop new episodes. We drop new episodes every Tuesday, and we just started season four. We just had our season premiere this week, um, and we have a really awesome lineup ready to go for the rest of the season. Yeah, and uh, thank you both, uh, Rachel and Leah, for uh, I had this. This this all came from a random idea that I had while uh, doing a morning bike ride. And you guys were totally open for it, and we're totally interrupting your season and your flow. And so, thank you for you know uh, having doing this with us. It was Thanks fun. very much for having us. Oh yeah, it was fun. Yeah, yeah. No, we were happy to join you guys. It's always good to talk about Kurt Cobain. Absolutely. <laughs> any, any excuse, and I'll see you guys when you do those MJ episodes. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> thank right. you guys. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. One thing that I would be kind of hard, I, I don't know how to do the intro. Who talks first? Uh, who, um, how do we want to do it? So, I mean, I, I'd like to recommend that, that maybe maybe y'all kick it off because I feel like it's more us visiting your podcast than the other way around. <laughs> I felt sure. the other way. <laughs> oh, really? But okay, yeah, I perfect. felt it was more the other way, but I, I'd be happy to start it off. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, if, okay. you, if you're... If you're now, all right, uh, off the cuff. Here we go, guys. <laughs> Hey guys, this is Rachel from. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. Hashtag history featuring discographers. This is how I'm seeing this. We'll each we'll say it the opposite way for each of our feeds. There, there we go. Uh, that sounds like a lot of editing. Yeah, <laughs> never mind. Okay. All right. I always try to get as many gulps of the drink in before this, because then I don't take my drink for like another 15 minutes. I, I don't know how, how you read it live. Like, that's why I pre-record my thing, because I can't read it and not, I have to, it takes, for my 10 minute thing, uh, I, it takes me like 30 minutes of recording time. Are you implying that I don't stumble over my words? True. I actually, I, I've only listened to the finished product. Yeah. Thank yeah. Okay. All right. Get, be prepared. Leah's I'll, like, oh I'll, my I'll hold, God. I'll reserve my judgment after yeah. this is over. Oh, I mean, I could put together probably an hour long, just blooper reel of all of the weird oh. sounds I make when I fuck up a sentence. Oh, totally. <laughs> no, we started adding a blooper reel in because we had so many and they were so funny. I didn't want... I didn't want them to go to waste because we're just sure. hilarious. So, but no, you guys will hear. I, I mess up a lot, and Tyler, I'm trusting you to make me sound as good as Leah always does. Well, I, I'll, I'll do the best I can. After Leah, after Tyler does his edits, I'll run it back through you, you can, too. Yeah, I'll send you the files if you okay, want to do your own edit. Okay. <clears throat> See, there was my first mistake. <laughs> I forgot the word was. And scene.